From 11FS, this is Fintech Insider News. This week we bring you Stripe acquires Nigeria's Paystack, Marketa Research discovers COVID-19 has forced three quarters of banks to change their strategy, and ESG funds are forecasted to outnumber conventional funds by 2025. All this and much, much more on today's show. Before we get to the show, quick ad from us. The banking business model is broken. The question is, how do we rebuild it? Embedded Finance presents a massive opportunity for banks to play a new role in the financial services ecosystem, offering more revenue streams, lower costs, and higher margins. Our new report, Better Banking Business Models, Embedded Finance and the Path to Growth, is a must-read for banks considering the smartest next step. Head to bit.ly forward slash banking as a service. That's bit.ly forward slash banking as a service to download the free report. All right, let's start today's show. Welcome to episode 473 of Fintech Insider. I'm Simon Taylor, and today I'm joined by my colleague and co-host, the one and only Mel Stringer. How are you doing, Mel? I'm very well, thank you. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Yeah, great show this week. So much, so much fintech news. We can't cram it all in. So hopefully we get the the good stuff. Um, And as always, we're joined by some incredible guests uh, making a Fintech Insider News debut. We have Sean Puckerin, who is Chief Product Officer at Global Processing Services, aka GPS. How are you doing, Sean? I'm really good. Thank you for having me. No, thank you for being on the show. I think you've got some news we'll get to later in the show. Exciting stuff. For sure. Yep. All good. Making a welcome return from across the pond, we have Chris Madden, who is co-founder and chief innovation officer over at Button. How are you doing, Chris? Very well. Thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure to be with you. Yeah, it's it's been a short while. Good to have you back. Uh, all right, let's get started with the show. Um, the big story this week is is Stripe acquiring Nigeria's Paystack, um, startup out of uh, Lagos that, like Stripe, provides a quick way to integrate payment services into an online or offline transaction by way of an API. Uh, we have, and, and others have referred to it in the past as the Stripe of Africa. Uh, sources close to the deal confirm that it's over $200 million. That makes this the biggest startup acquisition to come out of Nigeria, as well as Stripe's biggest acquisition anywhere. Paystack had been on Stripe's radar for some time prior to acquiring it. They both went through Y Combinator and were the first ever startup out of Nigeria to get into the world famous incubator. Then, In 2018, Stripe led an $8 million funding round for Paystack with others participating, including Visa, Tencent, and now in 2020, they've gone ahead and acquired them. But to find out more, we heard from Matt Henderson, who's the EMEA lead from Stripe. Let's hear from Matt now. Hi, I'm Matt from Stripe. Often referred to as the Stripe for Africa, Paystack is a tremendously impressive company. Incredibly, they already process more than half of all online transactions in Nigeria. In fact, every month the company processes five times more than the entirety of Nigeria's online payments from 2015, which is the year that Paystack was founded. So calling them the Stripe for Africa is frankly more flattering for us than it is for them. We are extremely bullish on Africa. As an infrastructure company, we can and have to take a multi-decades-long view in our planning and strategy. And when you think about the world in 2030 or 2040, the inevitability of economies across Africa playing a much more prominent role on the global stage is undeniable. You can just take the basic demographics. The population on the African continent is projected to reach 1.5 billion people by 2025. And by 2050, Nigeria will become the world's third largest country by population. So we need an Africa strategy. Every truly global company does. And our strategy is made clear by this deal. The best way for us to have impact across Africa is by helping Paystack to accelerate their growth. Over time, Paystack's capabilities will be embedded in Stripe's global payments and treasury network, our programmable platform for global money movement. For now, we're really excited to see what Paystack builds next. Thanks. Thank you, Matt, so much for being on the show and giving us that feedback. Um, Chris, I'm going to come to you first. As an avid um, sort of Stripe watcher, what were your first thoughts when you saw this? I like that I have the title of avid Stripe watcher. Uh, it's true. I love love Stripe. Um, you know, it, I, I think he summarized it really well. They're clearly taking a long view on this. This is clearly exciting when you look at it from the multi-decade uh, standpoint, and Africa as a market is. It sounds like it's really exciting today, too. 
you know, anytime I see uh, companies that are homegrown succeeding, but then being acquired by outside companies, it's always a little bit bittersweet in that I think it's really good for Stripe. I think it's a great, smart, strategic move, and it's obviously really good for them. It's one of the biggest acquisitions to date, but it does take away the opportunity for a truly homegrown kind of national um, player that takes the African continent. And it's kind of like a little bit Amazon-esque in that, you know, you buy up the biggest version of it everywhere and, you know, ultimately Amazon kind of takes over the world. That said, there are way worse things for commerce than Stripe taking over that part of infrastructure for the world because they just do such a good job at it. Um, I also thought it looks really promising for Fast, who they just invested in in the last year. You know, clearly they like to follow through on their investments. It's been really interesting seeing their um, investment and acquisition strategy play out over the last couple of years. That is a really interesting point. Sean, uh, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, so I mean, uh, also an avid Stripe watcher. Um, so my, my background is acquiring uh, and gateways anyway. So I'm only more latterly in the uh, in the sort of issuing space. So have uh, been paying attention to Stripe for for a long time. Um, I think you know, for me, it's um, it's a real demonstration of the of the great work that Paystack have done. I think one of the hardest things to do in in that industry is to get local connections and get them working, get them working reliably. And, and that's clearly what Paystack have done really well. And, and you know, Africa is is different, like every territory is different. And so having local expertise counts. Yeah. And so you can definitely just see from a purely practical point of view why they would go down that path. I think, you know, if you look at what Paystack can do in terms of the payment types they support, you know, whether it's USSD, as well as card, as well as bank to bank, and they've integrated to, you know, a huge number of the of the uh, banks in that region. That's that's just hard plumbing that's hard to replicate. I'm sure Stripe, I'm sure they could go do it, but you know, they still wouldn't have the local expertise to then do the next thing. So um for me it's it's really about them acquiring genuine local uh knowledge of banking regulation and payment methods yeah i think it's quite interesting how much paystack had already achieved by the time this acquisition had been done um so you know definite shout out to those guys um you know what are are some of the benefits here do you think um mel when you when you look at this for for both sides you know stripe obviously it it kind of makes sense is that what are the real benefits to paystack yeah, I think it's uh, it really makes sense for both of them. Um, I think Paystack is a really interesting company. And as you say, I think they've made tremendous um, progress. I think they've done a lot of heavy lifting. And obviously, they've made um, huge traction with integrating directly with the large banks in Nigeria rather than necessarily going through um, or connecting partnerships together. So they're directly plumbed in. Um, and obviously... You know that is uh, that's what Stripe is. That's what Stripe's are acquiring. That hard work and heavy lifting. Um, I also think that Paystack have done a good job in their intelligent routing of payments through different gateways and uh, processes. So that obviously relies on local knowledge and um, understanding of how e-commerce works in Africa and um, you know, different acceptance criteria of the various different gateways and processes that a payment could be routed through. But I think for a benefit for, for Paystack could be that um, international companies who wanted to expand into Africa may now have a partner to enable their growth. So I can only imagine that the volume of payments um, holistically will will grow. I think Paystack saying on their website that they're processing over 15% of all online transactions in Nigeria. But I think that that will grow tremendously as a result of um, external investment, which can only be a good thing for Nigeria as well. And that's massive, isn't it, Mel? And and I think the point about international companies is a really good one. If I'm uh, Shopify and my merchants need to be able to accept payments from more parts of the world, or I'm um, even Spotify, um, who I often get those. I say the wrong thing sometimes. I, I genuinely meant Shopify the first time, by the way. But uh, but it's you know like or any of these businesses that, that needs to collect payments from lots of parts of the world, um, especially growing markets um, for international in. It's very interesting. 
Um, but to, to Chris's point, it would be great to see more Nigeria out and, and more of the entrepreneurs and more of those businesses in that space be able to go global as a result of this. And I wonder if we'll, we'll start to see some of that as well. Um, I saw just on my Twitter feed a moment ago that um, Stripe have also invested in Pulley, who are a competitor to Carter. Um, some of you may be familiar with Carter, who are the cap table management company. Of course, they have Stripe Atlas as well, which is the uh, one-stop shop for setting up a company and then being able to accept payments. So if you can set up a company and you can manage the cap table and you can accept in payments, they're, they're playing a different game here, Chris, than, than I think a lot of acquirers. It's, it's, they're, they're solving different problems. Why, why do you think that is? It comes down to their mission. Like I, I think they've, they're one of people, one of few companies that have well stated their mission from pretty much the beginning, which is you know, increase the GDP of the internet. And that doesn't just mean making payments faster. That means making starting businesses faster. Um, it means creating companies that can actually succeed faster. It increases the scope of their interests so much. And so, you know, in the future, right now, we think Stripe payments is probably 75, 80% of their domain interest. You know, they have lots of little projects, like basically obsessed with the company, Stripe Press. Like they take books that they think um, are really, really good at educating people on certain topics and print them and make them available in hardbound copy. Um, just one small example, Atlas, really, really good one. Uh, what is it, like $1,000 and you get a properly set up Delaware C Corp and kind of all of the right paperwork. And now that can automatically go into your pulley system to manage the cap table to you know, help people through those initial challenges of starting a company and doing it right and being able to uh, have that story play out. It, it's, it's really exciting and, it's in, and inspiring. I think that solving problems adjacent to the payment, Sean, are really quite interesting because uh, for a long time, the payments business was about um, volume and uh, kind of capacity and not falling over and that sort of assuredness, which it still is, clearly. That's that's something that customers absolutely look for. But there's something interesting about getting into these adjacent spaces when you look at the growth opportunity that comes from that. Yeah, 100%. I think, um, you know, uh, having worked in that, that world for, for a while, it's, um, you know, it's not only, you know, interesting, I think, and I think Chris is absolutely right, it's kind of, you know, clearly part of their mission, but it's not for fun either, right? It's like, it, it, it you can generate more revenue that way, right? So the pressure on pure acquiring in terms of pricing is, is you know, trending down. So, you know, you've got to find other ways of, of, of maintaining revenue with your customers. And it also means that the more things that your customers use me, and this is classic product strategy, the less likely they are to move. So if I'm embedded to you in terms of my you know, you know, company, uh, the way my, my, my shares are associated, you know, my my uh, my payments, then it gets very, very hard to then switch vendors to, to do something else because that, that bundling works really well for me. So, um, you know, they're very impressive. They're doing lots of stuff. I don't think everything's a success, but actually that's even more annoying because like yeah they're, they're able to make do these experiments work out whether customers like them or not and then and then sort of move on so you know um yeah really impressive company doing lots of really interesting things and uh, you know they're, you know, they're, they're certainly the ones i watch in terms of working out how they sort of are approaching different markets i always like when a company will do something and fail and pull it and then like not just let it live on as a zombie product for, for 10 to 15 years that's sort of supported but nobody's using. Like that's something that I, I definitely saw in my banking days that, that banks still are trying to shake off that habit of, of somebody somewhere burned a lot of money on it and you get the sunk cost fallacy. Actually, experiment didn't work, move on, and we move to the next thing. And it's not about the team, it's about the, the learning. Um, that's a really powerful thing to start to see. So I'm sure we haven't heard the last of Stripe. Um, I'm sure we're going to hear a lot, lot more of it. Um, but there are lessons to be learned by uh, watching this and, and seeing what happens next in terms of uh, the acquiring market, which I think is super interesting. You know, the payment space, um, the, the stocks in the payment space are, have been super interesting. Will these guys come to IPO anytime soon? And if you're in this uh, acquiring space too, like Stripe have got to be one to watch for sure. And I know they're not at that lower level. They're, they're kind of an abstraction from it, but still super interesting when you solve problems around the, uh, uh, around the core problem and how sticky you can be. Next story, uh, though, uh, comes from, uh, well, we're flipping from acquiring to issuing, uh, kind of coming into your home court a little bit here, Sean. But uh, actually, it's not uh, Marquetta's uh, issuing side that are really talking. It's Marquetta's research side. Story comes from Finextra. And COVID-19 has apparently forced three quarters of banks to change their strategy. 
So they studied more than 200 banks and said that uh, COVID-19 has had a significant impact on 96% of banks. Who were the 4% of banks that were like, we don't care? They also said 78% of plans changed their future banking strategy to adapt to changes in consumer behavior. P.S. Who are the 22% who are not, um, such as the accelerated adoption of digital banking services and cashless payments? Um, 80% of banks have accelerated their plans to digitally transform. 89% are saying that the pandemic has drastically increased the speed of change from years to months. Three quarters of banks weren't prepared for the scale of change that COVID-19 hit. 88% of banks were overwhelmed by the demand for online and mobile banking. And 36% of banks are saying COVID-19 has opened the floodgates to modernizing core banking and payment systems. Uh, Sean, I'm going to start with you on this because um, this probably resonates with stuff you're seeing and hearing in the market. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I, I, my first reaction was exactly the same as you. It's like, who, who didn't get affected by this, right? And so I'd love to know I'd love to know who those 4% banks were genuinely, because I'd love to know what they were doing or what markets they're in. It's a, it's a definitely a kind of wake-up moment for a lot of things. And I think, you know, it's easy to get kind of interested in all the whizzy, cool stuff that we can do here. But I think, you know, a lot of this is just the basics of customer service that, that, that you know, started to crumble when when some of these traditional banks you know got hit by this and i've experienced it myself with my credit card provider i won't say who it was but you know doing a chargeback uh, in this you know during covid because my holiday got cancelled was horrendous right and so it's it's in those things that's where you know the these digital channels can kind of really come in and, and they, they, a lot of companies were getting away with it because they had you know a huge call center doing their stuff and that suddenly that disappeared overnight when covid hit so i think you know yes it's about core banking yes it's about lots of interesting new features that we can offer but it is about that core customer service and how i think genuinely customers are are choosing with their feet now as they kind of end up interacting and having these bad experiences you know they'll, they'll make choices to who they want to bank with going forward indeed they will and mel um you know we've certainly seen uh, a lot of uh, banks start to consider a lot of their infrastructure obsolete you know what do you do with your branches and your atms when nobody's using cash and can't go into branches anymore suddenly it starts to change your cost model and the cost pressures are really significant on banks but also their revenue lines look look kind of under pressure you know what, what are your thoughts as you as you look at some of these numbers yeah, I mean, there is a lot to say on this one. Um, I think firstly on uh, Sean's point around customer service, I mean, um, a few of my friends tried to get the bounce back loan scheme and we had a little uh, WhatsApp chat about it, about the different um, banks and how quickly they were responding. And there was a stark difference from a company like um, Starling and Lloyd's, for example. Starling didn't even have the product in place to be able to offer this, but they decided that that's what they wanted to do. And they span something up. They communicated beautifully with their client base, even though it wasn't available immediately versus Lloyd's who, um, you know, presumably can offer business loans to, um, to companies every day of the week, but there was no communication, weeks and weeks of delay, um, customers felt that they weren't being listened to or appreciated. Um, so, so definitely that on, on the customer service side, um, on the branches side, it was quite interesting, wasn't it? That, um, I think the stat was that as part of their future banking strategy, more than half of respondents, 54%, um, said that they plan to reduce their branch network. I was quite surprised that this wasn't higher, but then actually having thought about it, perhaps the cogs of change within larger banks, uh, larger older banks, um, turn quite slowly. And perhaps those conversations might not have happened yet. So maybe they'll happen at the end of the year when new budgets are cranked out. Um, I mean, it is logical that they that they would reduce um, physical branches, but... Um, but we saw this, Mel, didn't we, with the 2008, like the, the response was to cut some branches, um, do some more mobile, do some more digital. And it, and it kind of uh, moved them forward. And I think credit's got to be given to the large banks for like the their apps are okay. I mean, it cost them a lot of money and they got there, but they've got fairly decent mobile apps that most customers are kind of quite happy with. So let's let's give them a pat on the back for that. But now it's like it, it's almost like you're climbing a mountain and you think you've hit, hit the peak and then, oh, no, wait, this is just base camp. You've got so much more to go. We're heading into zero interest rate environments. That business model looks really, really under pressure. Chris, what do you do if you're a bank at this point? You know, there's, there's a lot of stuff in... Um, tokenized technology card programs and um you know 
without innovation in payments, people are going to really struggle. Is that an area banks could look at? And you know, you have quite a bit of experience from Venmo and Button. What are you, what are your thoughts there? Short answer: Yes. Like I think if you abstract COVID from all of this, it's really just they woke up to the fact that like I think COVID's largely been an accelerator rather than like a fundamental paradigm shift. Although I guess there has been this short period that's. Uh, kind of a f- more fundamental change, but consumers expect different things. And Sean, you know, you've been part of driving many of these programs that have been able to do um, more modern forms of banking that meet the customer w- more where they are, um, that give them accounts that are more aligned around their outcomes, that are more aligned around the way that they shop, that are more e-commerce focused, um, virtual card, online safety. Um, rewards is a space that is constantly, um, particularly in the US, I think it's kind of emerging in the UK. In the US, the rewards ecosystem around credit cards is an incredibly large part of uh, why people choose to spend on the cards that they do. Um, and I think things like, you know, I'll call back to you again, GPS, uh, let people build products that are more competitive in the market than, you know, just showing up with a standard debit card and the credit card to bolt on the side of it. So yeah, they're definitely going to have to to innovate and start looking like some of the smaller, more nimble players to keep their customer bases over the next five to 10 years, particularly when you take away, like the only reason historically a lot of people wouldn't consider an online bank is there's no branch to walk into. You've kind of leveled the playing field on the branch front when you have to shut all branches for three to six months, and then you start, you know, shutting the branches writ large because you realize people didn't need them in the first place. It really creates a much more level playing field for anyone else to enter. I love that level playing field point, but also it's a level playing field for bank versus bank. But the things that are not banks are doing pretty well at the moment. I mean, year over year, Square's earnings growth is 64%. Year over year, PayPal's earnings growth is 22%. That Now, forget about the share prices like and the price to earning multiples are, are bananas at the moment. Let's half those. Let's Let's quarter those and ignore them. Look at the real earnings growth, the underlying earnings growth here, and where's that coming from? And it's things that are solving adjacent consumer problems. But also, it seems to be businesses that have a much shorter cycle time on product development and a much lower cost of shortening that cycle time. And when you're trying to lumber 1970s technology forward to a cycle time that competes with a startup, that's always going to be hard. You know, Mel, what, what do banks do in this world? How do they get faster? How do they iterate more? So I think that um, Marketo was trying to get to this answer or trying to elicit this answer from respondents and said that 92% of them said that it would be absolutely vital to adopt a modern payments platform um, just in order to keep up. That's not even to innovate or particularly uh, push the boundaries of payments or um, you know consumer consumer banking. But I think if 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 a bank needs to um, offer personalization, real timeliness, and uh, exceed high expectations of their customer base, they really have to think about um, their core stack and um, sort of embedding partner services and rethinking how they might escape from the claws of, as you say, the 1970s um, sort of mega frame. And um, yeah, it's definitely a a balancing act. But I think also that they have such huge costs, um, particularly with the branch network, you know, number of employees maintaining this stuff, um, armies of people in a basement somewhere looking after a system that hasn't been upgraded in 10 years. Um, Yeah, something radical has to happen in order to be able to redeploy that money into the modern payments platform. I think it's interesting, Mel, that um, we just saw Deutsche Bank have started to want to sell their IT unit. Um, And if a bank sells their IT unit, does that mean that other companies can compete to be their IT unit? And will we start to see more of that trend? Um, And there's a report from PwC earlier this year that says uh, around 90% or $900 billion uh, of spend on digital transformation was wasted or has not delivered the results intended. So is the goal here to do more of the same? Like... Surely, it sort of kept you up with the market, but it didn't solve the fundamental problem. Like, 
dealing with uh, dealing with the injury and with a paracetamol is fine, but maybe there's there's some structural stuff we need to look at here as organizations. And uh, you know, look, I, I would love to keep debating this one because it is it is the topic for for us in, in a lot of ways. But um, getting to that truly digital core, um, starting to get to a point where you can have less of the big whale vendors and more of a school of fish of fintechs who are you know very agile and very capable, and people that are used to working with the fintechs, I think could be uh, could be really interesting interesting and fruitful territory for the banks to start thinking about. Um, We are going to take a quick pause here whilst we hear from our sponsors. This episode of Fintech Insider is brought to you by MyTech, combining the world's best forensic experts with the industry's most advanced technology. Only MyTech delivers banking-grade identity verification with the highest possible assurance levels, massively reducing risk, fraud, and costs. You can discover more at mytechsystems.com. This episode is also brought to you by Jack Henry Digital, the pioneers of personal digital banking. They're reviving the vision of financial institutions being on a first-name basis with customers by offering a platform for personal human-centered service that puts the customer first. Your customers experience immediate accessibility while your employees get cloud-based, core-connected tools that offer service at the moment of need. To learn more, uh, go to the latest insights at jackhenrydigital.com. If you haven't noticed, we do love making podcasts here at 11FS, and this is not our only one. Uh, do check out our sister podcast, InsureTech Insider. Um, if you haven't, you are missing out because, my goodness, there have been some belters, uh, as we say in the UK, some quality episodes in the last few months. Um, from the future of work, the biggest InsureTech news, there's a topic for everybody who wants to get their finger on the pulse of the industry. Head to ii.11fs.com uh, to start listening or just search InsureTech Insider on your podcast provider. Alrighty, on with the show. All right, next story is Visa investing in GPS. Visa has invested in Global Processing Services, the payment processor behind a host of challenger bank startups, including Revolut and Starling. UK growth private equity firm Dunedin uh, joined Visa in the round, which will be used to uh, used by GPS even uh, to extend its geographical reach. GPS has already successfully expanded into the APAC region last year, delivering payment services for Zinja, the Australian Neobank, as well as WeLab Bank, the first homegrown virtual bank in Hong Kong, as well as being chosen to be one of the preferred issuer processes for Visa's APAC FinTech Fast Track program. Uh, Kevin Jack, uh, VP of Visa Ventures, that's a lot of Vs. Um, GPS is an example of how we continue to invest in and partner with companies that provide valuable capabilities in the ecosystem and have the potential to advance the payments industry. Sean, you know a little bit about this story. Um, what does the investment mean and what does it bring you at GPS? Yeah, so yeah, firstly, we're like super happy that Visa have, have come on board and, and uh, sort of backed us as a, as a business. Um, you know, it's really for us, you know, we weren't necessarily looking for, for investment, but it, this was, uh, it really kind of gave, uh, you know, a, a, a stamp of approval for us as a business. And as we kind of expanded to uh, new ind- new uh, territories, new industries, it's a real sort of a, a way for us to, to demonstrate that, that we are, um, you know, a well-structured company, that we have all the regulatory approval that we need. And, and Visa is just a great mark to, to help us with that so um you know that's that's really helped us the other thing it, it, it really helps us with is um you know access to new features that visa bring out and allows us to invest in bringing those to market you know rapidly so um you know we're looking really forward to, to working with them very closely and in developing that, that those features um but but you know first first voice it's a it's a stamp of approval on, on you know our place in the industry um and that we are kind of like a a, a real good mix of being being ultra reliable being you know sort of um you know, a company that people can work with that they can rely on, but also providing all of that agility uh, and you know, uh, sort of stuff that the fintechs really, really need to build their propositions. So yeah, it's it's super exciting, and, and we're very proud to, to you know, be a Corvisa investor. And talk to me about the geographic expansion piece, because obviously um, the 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 issue of processor space with uh, the Marquesas and the Galileos of the world uh, for fintechs, especially, but also now the big banks looking looking at folks like yourselves. Um, that that geographical footprint is pretty important. We're called global processing services, so we so we need to be you know, global, right? So, and um, you know, a lot of the the companies that we work with have ambitions to be in, in multiple territories, and being able to uh, integrate once and then use that integration around the world is is there. We we talked about Stripe earlier. You know, that's been very very much what their model's been. So uh, we we definitely hope to do that. It's not easy. Um, every country has its regulatory 
differences. Uh, they have you know, cultural differences, payment differences. We know payments is, is a really tough business to do that in. But if you can do it and do it well, then you become an extremely valuable business. And you know, Visa have recognized, um, you know, one thing we've always talked about is scaling sensibly. It's the easiest thing in the world to say, we're going to be in all these territories. We've got these grand plans, but doing it is another question. So we've, 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 we've been cautious and but ambitious in our approach. You know, last year we went uh, to Asia uh, and set up in in Hong Kong, in Australia, in Singapore. You know, we've signed customers there, and that's been amazingly successful. The opportunity is huge, and um, we want to repeat that success elsewhere. But also, you know, you know, we haven't finished in Asia, and and you know, we need to do a lot more there as well. So you know, each each territory, each country is an investment, and uh, you know, working with Visa helps us helps us do that. Fantastic, Sean. Um, Chris, when I looked at this, I, I saw that Mastercard, of course, invested in Marquetta just, I think, a couple of weeks ago on the eighth of October. That story broke, and you know, Marquetta's been on a real tear, and uh, Galileo have done really well. The the fintech ecosystem has really changed as a result of this type of player on the on the issuer side. So Stripe very much on the acquiring side. You know, what do you think these sorts of players have have done to the market as well um, in terms of changing what's possible for consumers, and 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 how do you see that playing out? Yeah, it's been funny to watch MasterCard and Visa over the last couple of years. They've kind of been going one for one in kind of spaces that they want to have interest acquisitions and investments in. Um, like from the from the network side, it's just clear that the way they have to do business is going to be different. Um, and it ties back to the same thing that we talked about on the Marketa piece, which is it is easier than ever to make a different financial services offering for a different group of consumers. And so for a network, in order to have you know, the volume, you don't do five to 10 deals that just bring all of the volume that you need. You need to do 100 deals, each of which on the other side are doing 100 deals each. And that's where like folks like GPS are going to be so important. This, the shape of their business is just going to be incredibly different in 10 years and is beginning to be different now. And this is all of these acquisitions are starting to show how it's not just doing a big deal with an issuer that's going to be the future. It's going to be all of the data and all of the kind of um, innovative multiplexers that sit in between them and um, the products that customers are really using. Mm, interesting. It's, of course, post the plot acquisition, the data piece is going to be be really, really powerful. And um, I think uh, Mel, Sean mentioned there, like the ability to bring products and services to market quickly and, and get those in the hands of customers. Um, and I think even Chris alluded to it, like if every company can be a fintech company, like one of the hardest ways to get fintech or finance products out to market is being a bank with banking infrastructure there are now different routes to market so do you think that you know this is visas heading down more of a bank as a service route and 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 what do you think about that Yes, definitely. I, I really do. I think that it shows confidence in um, Visa for, for themselves, for a bank and service provider, but also um, for the other companies that they've acquired. So obviously Plaid and Moniz are two examples, but there have been many others in the last year around the world. And we've discussed it several times um, on, on this show too. Um, I think that um, Potentially, we could see some really interesting, warm introductions between the, you know, the, the acquired companies within cohorts, and um, we might look out for new products and services, new partnerships within players within the Bass stack. But also for for new entrants, I think it makes it more obvious that you should um, you should choose Visa or you should choose um, Mastercard, and that those uh, those providers can actually you know, offer you introductions in new markets and um, pave the way for their their favorite BAS providers that embedded services within the stack as well and harks back to something that we were discussing internally before around, you know, will there be a um, sort of school board or a, um, a favorites list of really niche, really bespoke providers within the stack for each market? And that's quite exciting. It creates really some amazing opportunities for competition um, in really close quarters, you know. Yeah, it definitely does. The, that sort of school of fish thing just keeps coming back around. Um, so I guess, um, Sean, what's next for you guys? Where, what are you thinking about um, in terms of going forward? What are you, uh, uh, what are you really excited by? 
Oh, well, so I mean, uh, I think really interesting the discussion you just had. I think uh, you know we just seen Razor launch their uh, car program, and, and that's yeah, you know, we're, we're working with them on that. And so that's a great example of what we've just been discussing, which is a brand that was not traditionally in payments, taking a stack of, of partners and, and and really bringing out a novel proposition to market. And I think you know we're we're really excited to be able to. To, to go to market with, with companies like that as well, as well as all of the sort of traditional players as well. Um, but that just shows the, the where the opportunities are. And I think, you know, we need to build products and services that enable those guys to get to market as quickly as possible with all the regulatory approval you know, in, in, a, in a safe and secure way for their customers. And that then just enables, you know, loads of different propositions. And I think we're just excited to see what our customers can do with these stacks of software. What's interesting is that would have probably been a bank partnership 10, 20 years ago. It would have been an affinity deal, and now it doesn't have to be. So again, we're talking about from the Marquetta piece about uh, it's more costly than ever to run the bank infrastructure. Um, Also, the partnership business that would have come there can now go elsewhere. It's sort of been attacked from all around the edges. And this sort of um, quarter by quarter mentality of like, what can I do that's going to have financial impact this show? It's so short termist in, in how it operates that it it creates a massive strategic risk. Um, And it's interesting that now I think banks in their budget cycle for 2021 are being forced to face that strategic risk, partially because of the pandemic pulling forward 10 years of progress. In the last 10 years, it's been drip, 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 and they haven't really noticed it, whereas now you're forced to notice it. So what are you going to do? What's your strategy actually going to be? Is it just going to be to do more of the same, some more digital transformation with the same people that helped you last time? Or actually, are there new suppliers out there that should be part of that mix? And that's not to poo-poo all, you know, like Visa and and people that have been around for a long time. That's just to say that uh, it's probably time for something a bit more radical if you are in the big banks. And if you're an an innovator, there's probably never been a better time, or if you're a brand, to, to really package financial services yeah and i think the, 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 the sort of the real yeah, we, we we spoke about it earlier right is that agility piece because actually you do want to you do want to change quarter to quarter but what you want to do is be launching new propositions quarter to quarter to react to what's going on in the environment or even faster your cycle time needs to, yeah. to really really crunch exactly and that's what you need to worry about not like oh no I've, I've, you know that all that capex that i had is going into my core banking system so i can't change my uh, propositions you know we saw that with you know starling you know launched their connected card during covid right that was you know enabled by us enabled by other other parties but you know we allowed them to be able to make those quick decisions and get those products to market there's something really interesting about companies that can ship faster. It's, a bit of, it's almost like a power law of companies that can ship in financial services faster seem to accrue so much more value than everybody else. It's like a J-curve. And like the ability to do that is going to be really, really crucial. So um, blog posts coming to a, a, a website near you soon on power laws and, and shipping product quickly, I'm sure. But uh, I'm going to move us to the next story because, um, my God, I'm loving this, these discussions too much. Bit of a Bit of a different one. This was covered by... Uh, business insider, finance magnets, but but I picked it up from um, from Packy McCormick, who uh, of NotBoring.com, uh, who's uh, who's phenomenal. Robinhood warns users about a margin call, and nearly two thousand accounts have been breached by hackers all in the same week. So, a few hours before the market opened on the fifteenth of October, Robinhood told users to raise their cash buffers on several widely held stocks because they could face an account deficit. Robinhood said that this was in order to protect their customers from increased volatility in the U.S. election. Also, on the fifteenth of October, nearly two thousand brokerage accounts at the Robinhood uh, app were compromised by an attack that gave hackers the ability to take over users' trades and funds. The breach is believed to be Robinhood's largest and is particularly severe because some accounts stolen uh, were those of clients claimed they had set up two-factor authorization and authentication. Uh, The exact amount of accounts affected is not determined. And as a company spokesperson said that not all customers were alerted, but only those whose credentials were affected by this discovery. Uh, Chris, what were your thoughts when you saw this? Where do you want to start? The hack or the margin call? You know, both. I think they kind of fall both into the same thing. Like there's so many responses. It's so easy to pile on and be like, not doing a good enough job. Like you need to get better. Um, I have a lot of sympathy because Robinhood's in a similar place as we were at Venmo five or six years ago. And there's this really this inflection point where you have to stop being the pirate and start being the Navy because you've kind of outgrown the stage at which you can just focus on moving quickly and trying to do things that you know probably won't quite scale. And one day the realities of the scale that you've realized catch up with you and 
you realize you have all of the problems that all of the other incumbents have, but haven't necessarily got all of the investments that they have in terms of being able to resolve them. And so I think they've had a couple of things that have caught up with them where they've done a tremendous job at moving really, really fast and making investment more accessible to a completely new group of people. That group of people is now sufficiently large that they're targeted from a lot of outside folks and they have a lot of the scale challenges that you know big brokerages do and they're just not quite prepared and they're trying to play catch up. So that's not to say that they don't need to do better, um, but I can completely see how you get there. And now the question is, can they internally change their thinking from being the pirate to kind of more being the Navy without losing their agility entirely? Coming to that ability to ship quickly but react, it's like the awkward teenage phase of a company. You know, it's gone through its it's gone through a bit of a growth spurt, and its voice is cracking and breaking, and it and it sort of gets a bit moody sometimes, and it doesn't always know how to respond. But it's the making or breaking of it. It's such a crucial point of its life. Uh, Sean, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I, I, I kind of agree, Chris. Right? So it's not an you know, opportunity to pile on and, and sort of criticise, but I think you know, um, I don't think anyone would have designed uh, a, a communication a process that sort of said, "Let's give people twenty four hours to, to do this." So clearly, something, uh, some information came to pass, or some model they saw where they uh, kind of uh, freaked them out a little bit, and therefore had to kind of make those calls. So um, that's not good. It's not not positive. But um, at the same time, you know, I totally agree. They're, they're at that stage uh, where they've grown so so well that that now these things are happening to them and, and that is you know uh, a really tough period to kind of to, to, to go through and and it, and it means that you have to build teams and things that you didn't want to have to build and all that kind of stuff and that's and that's and often the, the people who led you through one phase not the people to lead you through another phase of that stuff and so that that sort of stuff is really hard um but they've done such a great job and, and so you know I, we, I definitely want them to prosper because they've brought a lot of um yeah, uh, innovation to that space in terms of how they've um, you know, enabled a, a whole new set of uh, people to, to enter into investments and that kind of stuff. And I certainly wouldn't want to see that go away. It's interesting that so many people in the in the fintech um, Twitter RT are, are very sort of negative on Robinhood these days. But I think that sort of got a lot of people thinking about finances point is a really, really good one. Um, Mel, um, margin calls for consumers. How do, how do you feel about those and, and complex derivatives? You know, we saw the FCA has banned a lot of derivative products for uh, for UK consumers in the crypto side. Um, but in the US, you know, it's, it's, it's quite a bit of a different picture with Robinhood where uh, consumers can be buying stocks on leveraged on quite a bit of leverage, in fact, uh, with a 24-hour margin call. Um, you know, is it fair to be treating these guys like um, financial institutions, or do you think there's there's some risk of this coming out in the wash badly at some point? Do you know what? I think that there is always uh, risk, and I think that some people um, will be really perturbed by these sort of data data breaches. And um, there, there was one respondent that asked how this could possibly be legal on Twitter. But I mean, I really like Chris's uh, Navy and pirates analogy. The thing that came to mind when I was reading about this was um, like a roller coaster. And um, how I guess even this is kind of exciting, isn't it? I mean, to a certain cohort of customers, this um, this will be sort of proper pirate exciting stuff, which isn't necessarily to say that it's responsible. But all I'm saying is that I'm not sure it will um, damage their brand credibility in the way that one might expect. Um, and I also think that perhaps there is an element of um, people on Robin Hood potentially having in mind or being a bit um, nostalgic of like Wolf of Wall Street. So these kind of things, um, yeah, gritty, they're a nuisance, they're potentially scary, but um, I imagine that there is some romance tied up in that as well. So yeah, it makes me wonder. It really does. Um, there was one thing, though, that uh, whilst people were talking about the margin call, I, I do worry about the financial literacy of some of the folks involved. We did see the the um, the unfortunate suicide of one of the Robinhood customers who didn't understand um, kind of what, what how underwater they were or were not. And Robinhood then very quickly changed their UI and you know kind of issued some some statements about it. Um, but there's there's a question about responsibility here. It's it's interesting when you look through the Learn portal of Robinhood. You know, th- one of the things you do not see on there is 
uh, front running. You don't see the risks, uh, or, you know, which which Robinhood does, of course, by selling its order book to um, to professional traders. Allow those professional traders to do um, to to the retail customer. But you also don't see a, a lot of things, a lot of real detail about how to uh, think about uh, appropriately managing risk. They rely on their community for that. And there's there's this really interesting question of like how much is the community doing versus how much should the learn portal be doing and how much should the product be doing? I mean, Chris, you know, where do you stand in that debate? Do you think there is a risk there in terms of the financial literacy side? A hundred percent. It's inherent to their mission. Then that I actually don't know what their documented mission is, but from the outside, it looks to me that they want to open up easy investing to a whole group of people for whom it wasn't before. And that is a great thing. That can be a great thing. Like a lack of exposure to stocks is you know, a, a wealth challenge in America. Um, that said, it comes inherently with an audience that has less understanding. Um, I think, you know, if I were personally doing it, I'd certainly be focusing a lot less on products like, you know, Robinhood Gold and margin trading. And I, it does seem very easy to get into um, troubles with that. And but from what I can see, they're trying to educate. It's just a really hard problem. And, you know, you do it too. Like you go through the 15-step wizard that tries to teach you and just go next, 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 until you can, you know, buy your Tesla stock or whatever it is that you want to do. People aren't being helpful in educating themselves. Um, it is on Robin Hood to try and do a better job. Uh, but it's inherently a hard challenge to open up a new type of um, investment opportunity to a larger group for public social good, while that group is, you know, inherently less educated about it. And I think it's really unfair that um, the the headlines often talk about all oh, these Robinhood traders are in the market making stocks look weird, and people people undervalue. Like, there's a lot of money printing happening right now, and that's probably pushing up equities quite significantly. Um, I think the Robinhood trader community does get get an unfair rap for that, and, and it's always this difficult line. But there's some younger, hungry companies coming up now that are using community in an interesting way in the US. There's there's public dot com. There's common stock. There's a few folks trying to do that. Uh, there's obviously free trade here in the UK and many, many more starting to emerge. So um, I don't think we've heard the last of this one. The next story comes from the FT, and this is about ESG funds forecast to outnumber conventional funds by 2025. Assets in sustainable investment products in Europe are forecast to reach 7.6 trillion euros over the next five years, outnumbering conventional funds. Environmental, social, and governance investing aims to look beyond traditional financial metrics when picking stocks. Uh, And according to research by PwC, in a best-case scenario, ESG funds will experience more than a threefold jump in assets by 2025, uh, moving from a share of around 15% to around 57%. Uh, The shift could have big implications for companies across Europe by redirecting capital into sustainable activities and forcing businesses to be transparent about everything from their environmental impact to how they treat employees to how they source goods in their supply chain and much, much more. Um, who wants to start out on this one? Uh, show of hands. Uh, Sean, do you want to take it? Take this one? Yeah. Uh, well, first of all, good, right? That's a, that's the, that's a good outcome. You know, um, you know, and I think this is because consumers are voting with their feet, right? So they're, they're, they're saying this is what they want. And so we're having to react to that and, and the industry's having to react to that, which is a massively positive thing. I think, um, you know, the this is for real. People want to make sure that their money, their pension funds, their, you know, whatever they've got is not, you know, pushing an agenda that, that you know, contradicts with where how they believe in their sort of moral obligations. So I think that's that's really positive. I think, as you say, the real trick is how do you measure this stuff in a meaningful way The the risk is that people you know, greenwash this stuff or, or, or you know, that the data is there. I think there are some really interesting startups and businesses uh, you know, going to be built around measuring this stuff in a transparent way, you know, independent checkers of this data. Um, and, and I think you'll see a huge sort of ecosystem of, of players emerge to help um, you know, consumers and businesses make those decisions in a, in a, in a, in a, in a more transparent way. And, and that's, you know, that's a great opportunity for those that can take it and, and great for consumers as well. So you know, this is to be cheered and is a good move and it's consumers you know uh, voices being heard hey yeah, chris thoughts i'm with sean sounds like a generally good trend although i'll be honest um don't really have a, a good basis for understanding the the greenwashing thing you know sounds like it could potentially be a challenge but if we were going to over index investment anywhere I, i'd rather it's here yeah uh, so i think the fear with greenwashing is like 
can I just carbon offset being a douchebag? Um, so like how many carbon credits do I buy to, to like deal with the fact that I'm pumping out oil? Now, it's interesting. Energy stocks over the past three years are the worst performing out of any sector. Um, so it, it is interesting that this stuff is starting to bite. We've, and uh, I think we saw a few weeks ago the big four accounting firms have published an ESG standard. It is kind of hard because uh, ethical is like ethical to who? Um, sustainable for who and under what measurement. So this stuff gets really, really complicated. Um, Mel, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I, I'm with you. Um, and I'm also thinking about um, the general public here in the UK as well. And um, perhaps the majority wouldn't know precisely which um, stocks comprise their pension fund, for example. And there'll be some erosion um, necessarily with um, a move towards ESG funds, um, if if actually traditional pensions are are based around, um, I guess what we're we're calling here more um, traditional traditional stocks or traditional blends. Um, so yeah, I wonder if actually um, it's something that we can respond to quickly enough to um, to avoid the general public um, feeling the hits in their financial investments unknowingly. But I think it's around education and um, more empowerment generally in the market um, and just making sure that the things that I guess we're reliant on, so whatever the government is investing, whatever we're investing in terms of state pensions, et cetera, um, are all moving the needle according to um, consumer demand and um, you know where, where we're putting our feet, where we're voting. Yeah, and I think that's the key, isn't it? I love that point about education. Do you understand what's in your 401k? Do you understand how your pension's invested? Um, how, what's that look through look like? And uh, how do we know? And and so, you know, we, we did an episode recently, episode 466, um, that covered a lot of these topics. And, you know, a lot of the reliance the consumer has right now is on the likes of a BlackRock or a Schroeder's or PIMCO and all of these asset managers to be the responsible investor and to ask these questions and to hold boards to account which is great. Um, but what data is the consumer going to get and, and how is that connected? Because you know, 60% of all capital, according to the Investment Management Association, is 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 retail, right? It's 40% pension funds, 20% direct. So we could move the market towards better outcomes for the world if the if the consumer is, is motivated to do so. Um, but will the market really move in that direction? Um, Sean, there was also um, like the Bank of England Governor Mark Carney set up a task force, um, you know, uh, quite some time ago, led by Bill Winters, uh, the CEO of Standard Chartered, where they hope to begin trading under a new framework, uh, which will include a transparent uh, price for carbon, but in the beginning of 2021. Um, what do you think about this? Like, you know, carbon credits have been around for some time. Do you think there's there's something we can do in in terms of uh, how this is traded, managed, and thought about in the economy um, that that could make a difference here? Yeah, I think well, so it's not my area of expertise, but I think it's extremely tough to kind of create these these frameworks across the industry to to get everyone to buy. And I think it's much more likely that we'll see um, you know people uh, uh, hold these companies to account to make them more transparent. I think you know the 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 way of, of doing this is to have you know transparency ratings and then uh, ratings on on the on what we're on the actual information that we're getting. So um, I think that's that then individual companies, so the providers of pensions or uh, intermediaries can start assessing those companies on on independent criteria, and, and that comes up to your point of uh, it's not just carbon; it's it's ethical business, it's you know it's pay gaps uh, with uh, for female employees, it's all of these things. And I think you know the 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 fact that that I think companies will start offering this information to people on which to then choose how they invest their money will you know hopefully force companies to then open up that data because it becomes a reason to do it. So it'd be very interesting to see how that evolves. It's following the consumer, right? The, the consumer demand is there. How, what data we see and and what the investor is doing is almost secondary. But if you're as a business not responding to this, I think for a long time uh, investment management companies would have a lot of um, good marketing material about their ESG credentials, and it was okay to market being green. But now. 
people are looking through for genuine follow through on, on some of that stuff. And it was quite interesting that we saw uh, NatWest in the UK partner with a little app called Kogo. Kogo uses open banking to measure your carbon footprint and, and a click of a button, you can offset your monthly footprint. That but baked in an automated like self-driving carbon offsetting just feels like a no-brainer bolt on to a bank account like why has no bank done that yet there are all of these things that you could start to do that you could set and forget and automate that i think consumers would really appreciate as part of a subscription model and, and new revenue lines so uh, linking back to what we we're talking about earlier all right we're getting to the part of the show now where there are just so so many stories we don't possibly have time to cover them all um so mel do you want to start with the first story we didn't have time to cover yes i will start um okie dokie so this one is around Virgin Money, and um, apparently 2 million credit card holders are forced into app banking. Um, so Virgin Money confirmed it's making changes to its credit card offering as it looks to turn off the online service on the 31st of January next year. This forces 2 million customers to use its app instead to manage the account. Since the launch of its credit card app in 2019, Virgin Money has seen an increased number of customers using it. Meanwhile, they've also seen a decrease in the interest in its online service for credit card customers, with only around 10% of those people currently using the web platform to manage their accounts. So some less savvy account holders have expressed concern around the move to app banking, while others express concerns around data formats of statements within the app, um, which seems kind of like a, a small critique. But anyway, um, Virgin Money have um, confirmed that there are no other changes to other products and there will be plenty of virtual assistants, et cetera, and you know, live chats um, and so forth. So I think this is quite interesting. Having managed a web app before several web apps before i wonder if actually it's part of um you know a more holistic strategy to move towards a modern easy to maintain easy to flex um adaptable platform um and you know at a operational level maybe those web engineers and product and support staff um, are being deployed onto other projects internally as they're sort of starting to partner with um with other providers in the bus stack as well. Um, I also heard incidentally that they're axing branches too, or at least merging them. So um, yeah, it seems like they're subtly moving or redeploying capital, I would say. Back over to you, Simon. Thank you so much. Yeah, interesting. Given everything we've been talking about earlier um, and the importance of branches. Um, all right, another story we didn't have time to cover is uh, JP Morgan Chase uh, taking on Square and PayPal with a smartphone card reader for faster deposits for merchants. So they're rolling out a, a checking account that is paired with a new fintech-inspired service called Quick Accept. Quick Accept lets merchants take card payments within minutes, either through a mobile app or contactless reader, uh, and users will see sales hit their Chase business account on the same day. Um, the fast funding is offered free unlike competitors including Square, which typically take a day or more and charge a 1.5% fee to make instant transfers. Guess who's playing hardball all of a sudden? Uh, JP Morgan will migrate a large proportion of its more than 3 million small business customers to the new services and are targeting customers with less than 500,000 in annual revenue. It's Square customers. I love this because this is JP Morgan realizing that their competitors are folks like Square. Um, banks look to their left and their right, and they look to other banks and tried to be slightly faster than the other guys. But now actually looking at Square and trying to compete there is interesting. Although I think Chase have had a few goes and they had some stuff in their labs sort of five, six, seven years ago, maybe uh, having a go at doing this. So what's super interesting is like, the banks have labs that can come up with this, this stuff, but then they do nothing with it for seven years until the market gets big. And then they have to buy back in. And I'm willing to bet this is so much more expensive than what the lab did seven years ago. So it sort of speaks to that, like if you're doing um, the transformation programs, it's really, really hard to buy back in and yet you're kind of forced to. How do you get the stuff that the really smart people in the labs are doing to production? Is it just by bringing it into the core or surely there's got to be some other approaches? Uh, Sean, we don't have a lot of time to cover this one, but you wanted to make a brief point? Right, so I've lived this. So I, I, I built the mobile point of sale solution at WellPay. Uh, you know, so um, I think one of the tough things to answer your question is it's, it's really hard to cannibalize your own business, which is what you do with a solution like this. Whereas if you're square, it's entirely virgin territory. And so it always sounds like a great idea in the lab. 
and it isn't the technology that's the problem. It's the, can we really commit to cannibalizing our own business? It's only once someone else has cannibalized it, does that become a no-brainer? So that's one of the tough decisions in large companies that you kind of have to make. It is always. Um, already, uh, Mel, uh, over to you. Thank you. So the next story is about uh, Ecosia investing in a wooden debit card startup. So Ecosia, the eco-friendly search engine, has invested £1 million for a 20% stake in TreeCard, a wooden payment card that channels profits from merchant surcharges into reforestation programs. The wooden card comes along with an app that lets users track spending, split bills and monitor how many trees have been planted as a result. Um, of user spending. The app is operated over the MasterCard network and payments are processed by Synapse. TreeCard founder Jamie Cox believes that if TreeCard managed to get at least 100,000 people on board, that would help funding uh, the planting of 6 million trees and every $60 spent using the card would equate to a new tree. So as we were discussing before, being green, planting trees is very in vogue. Um, Lots of companies are actually um, doing this. I read a really fun um, story on LinkedIn recently about Brewdog, um, the the beer. I'm sure you guys know who Brewdog is. I mean, come on. Um, But they were planting lots of uh, trees up in Scotland. And it did make me think about, you know, the ecological impact. And um, as you were saying, Simon, before, can we just sort of plant a tree for um, for being a bad egg. But it does seem that um, tree cards at least are really kind of living um, their mission and their, um, their brand and their goals and their habits seem to be very well aligned. Um, so I think they've made a statement that's saying that they were planting trees responsibly in biodiversity hotspots and always in collaboration with local communities, which is obviously really, really important. And I don't know if you guys have seen the card, but it's actually incredibly aesthetic. I kind of um, I kind of want one. Um, <laughs> Let's cool. see if we, well, I mean if you're if you're listening folks, you know where we know where FinTech Insider is, um podcast at eleven fs.com. Um do 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 get in touch. Mel wants a card. Um but I, I do think there's something interesting about when in the age of metal cards um kind of going another way is quite nice. Uh, it's time for our and finally story. This and finally story is how Captain Tom started an open banking revolution. So uh, if you're not familiar with the story of Captain Tom Moore, he is a 99-year-old British war veteran who began doing laps in his garden uh, to raise money for uh, the National Health Service charities in April, and he became a national sensation here in the UK. Uh, By the time he had turned 100 at the end of the month, he'd raised more than £30 million. He was the oldest person in the UK, uh, and he had a number one single and was receiving so much posts that the Royal Mail had to recruit hundreds of volunteers to sort through his fan mail. This is not the only reason uh, his fundraising campaign made history, as the digital donations that came through to support him uh, can be said to have started a bit of an open banking revolution. Uh, the heroic antics of the army veteran became the subject of a digital payment trial that could eventually kill off your bank cards. Um, Mel, how did this work? Do you know how it works? How did uh, how did Captain Tom start an open banking revolution? Well, I think it was just simply that um, people wanted to donate. So um, everybody that I spoke to, whether it was you know my parents, my neighbours, my friends, everybody wanted to donate. And um, and of course, you wouldn't have Captain Tom's personal bank details. And so everybody had to contribute to these online um, fundraising pools. And um, I think potentially for the first time, that was. Um, you know, the, the introduction to a lot of people um, to to things like um, PayPal money pools and, um, you know, online donation pots, etc. But I don't think Captain Tom would have seen this coming at all. I think it would have been an incredible to surprise on top of his many accolades to say that he's uh, launched a, an open banking revolution. Among many other things. Uh, Sean, any thoughts? So I think on on his page there was a link to uh, I I don't know if I'm right but I think it was like the the pollinate guys had built that that sort of um, open banking linking um, system so so it was a relatively slick UX to be able to do a bank to bank transfer and so um, in that sense I think Mel's was right it was kind of people's first sort of real um, 
uh, introduction to that pure sort of uh, banking uh, UX. I still think, you know, uh, so great and, and generally really positive. I mean, you know, we, we need some of these catalysts to kind of make open banking work for people. Um, I think at the same time, it's uh, it's really the least controversial person that you're going to pay, right? You're not uh, necessarily going to have to do a charge back on uh, on on your donation to uh, to to Major Tom. So you know um, the, the whole kind of bit around payment protection, that kind of stuff. It's it's not a scenario where that's probably going to be an issue. So um, so you know that it, it's a perfect example of where open banking can work really well. Indeed, indeed. I mean, people have been sort of saying, when will open banking get adopted? Um, Chris, um, give us a US perspective on this. You know, the account-to-account payment experience there for donating to charity is, is quite a bit different. What, what are your thoughts uh, looking at this as, as kind of somebody with, with the dual perspective? You know, I, I first got to America and when I realized how bad it was, I went and worked at Venmo because, you know, I, I didn't even realize the, the scale of the problem in America um, because, you know, things even back in 2011, when I left the UK were just vastly better. Like I could send money to someone with their email address same day for $0. Um, you know, we're playing catch up. I think I've been jealous of the UK banking system about 15 times during this conversation, like open banking regulation and the ecosystem that that's created around it. We are like, there's lots of talks of trying to get to something like that. Um, We've definitely gotten to a point where innovation can happen on top of existing banking charters through intermediary companies. Um, But we just do not have this same level of kind of open ecosystem. And it applies to everything, whether it's, you know, person to person payments, which Zelle has, you know, taken some of the pain out of inside of um, banks, but you see the same thing in donations and it's tough, man. I just, I, I kind of just want to take the UK system, and drop it here. It's, it's a lot better. <laughs> Indeed. Well, and but also maybe why we don't get a Venmo. It's maybe why we don't get a Squares. So the market then kind of comes around the other way. So uh, interesting times. Well, that wraps up this week's show. Uh, thank you so much to all of our guests. Uh, where can people find out more about you, Sean? Uh, Globalprocessing.net. Fantastic, uh, Chris. Uh, you can learn more about Button at usebutton.com uh, or me on Twitter at Chris Madden. Thank you so much. And Mel? You can find me on LinkedIn and, of course, at 11fs.com. Fantastic. As for me, you can find me at SYTaylor on Twitter or you can find me on LinkedIn by looking for Simon Taylor. Thank you so, so much for listening. If you like what you heard, do remember to subscribe to the podcast. Um, Also, um, do remember to pass on the pod. Uh, Tell other people about it. Tell any fintech nerds that you know. And if you want to join the conversation, find 11FS on social media, search for Fintech Insider or email podcast at 11FS.com. Thank you so much and we'll speak to you soon.